Thank you, guys. Um, that is, well, today we're wrapping up our three weeks of, didn't you like Gina's really white shirt? <laughs> Sorry, I just had to point that out. Um, today we're wrapping up our three-week series called Every Member of Ministry. Um, we are studying the book of James because James talks about how faith without deeds is dead. Um, it's also those three weeks where we're doing our sign-up for volunteers for the coming year. And so we ask if you would take the time in the lobby on your way out of church today to sign up for some area, some ministry of the church, if you have not uh, yet done that. If everybody gets up under the load, um, it crushes no one, um, and it gives the best, puts our best foot forward as Hebron, as well as for the Lord. So um, I invite you to do that. Um, want to, uh, we're wrapping up our, again, our series here on James, and so I asked and answered four questions a couple of weeks ago, and so just as a little bit of review here, the first question that we asked a couple of weeks ago was, who wrote the book of James? Well, James wrote the book of James. This is not to be confused with the James of the Gospels. This is James, the Lord's brother, um, who didn't become a believer, who didn't uh, give himself uh, over to Jesus as the Messiah until after he had seen the resurrected Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 7. Um, also, we asked, when was this letter written? It was written in 45 or 46 A.D., which makes the letter of James the first of all of the New Testament books. Uh, we also asked, to whom was the letter of James written? And James tells us, James chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. That's code name for Jewish people. And then he goes on to say that these 12 tribes of Israel folks are also his brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's writing to people who are Jewish by culture, but they have become believers. They've become Christians. They be recognize that Jesus is their Messiah. So they're Jewish by culture, Christian by faith. And then we asked the last question, which was, why does James write this letter? Well, James writes this letter because he is concerned that some of these Jewish Christians um, are living in an inauthentic way. That is, that they're living lives that are completely inconsistent with someone who has a real and personal relationship with Jesus. And uh, last week we saw one of the for instances that James gives of somebody who is inauthentic in their relationship with the Lord, and that is that they've got a potty mouth, they're out there ripping people up with their mouth, and so James says that's inconsistent as an example of somebody who has this relationship with the Lord. Today, we're going to take a look at another of the areas of life that James points out, and that is how bosses relate to their employees. You say, really, that's in the book of James? Actually, yes, it is. So let's uh, read James chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5 together. And I'm going to ask if you would to stand. Again, we stand each week out of respect for God's word, but also to recognize that God's word is the final word in all matters. That it doesn't matter what your friends at work think. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks. It doesn't matter what your spouse thinks or your children think or your mother-in-law thinks. All that matters is what God thinks. We don't have to wonder because he wrote it down. So let's read together James chapter 5, verses 1 through five. Here we go. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You may be seated. Thank you so much. 
Okay, so let's just kind of walk into these verses together because James doesn't sound very affirming right here. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. And it seems like James gives a scathing rebuke of wealthy people. So let's dive in here and figure out what's going on in this text. Well, he begins verse 1. He says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. So here James is speaking to his rich Jewish audience. Uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jewish people typically, um, you know, anyway. <laughs> and so James says to these folks, weep and wail. Misery is coming upon you. Why? What have they done? Well, skip on down to verse four. He tells us what they've done. Look, the wages that you failed to pay. So they had people work for them and they weren't paying them. They had people go out on the job and at the end of the week, they didn't pay them. He says, the wages that you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are now crying out against you. The cries, he says, of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. So here's what's happened. It's Friday. The harvesters have been out there in the field. They've been working all week. It's been a dirty job. It's been a dusty job. It's been a difficult job. It's been a backbreaking job. It's been a hot job. And so they, at the end of the week, they come to the, to the master, to the boss man, and they say, okay, it's the end of the week. It's time to pay up. And the boss man says, hey, thanks for coming out this week. Y'all have a really great weekend. And they say, well, hold on there just a minute there, Kimasabi. That's not the way it goes here. We're supposed to have a little bit of money here exchanged hand. And the workers are saying that. And so then the boss says, well, you know, I appreciate you all did a good job for me. Yeah, we know we did a good job for you. I appreciate you filling my silos. Yeah, we know we filled up your silos for you. And so I just don't feel like paying you guys today, though. So I'm just going to consider that part of my extra profits and, and appreciate you all coming out. And uh, the guys are going, what's going on here? Verse 4, the wages you failed to pay the workmen. I mean, this is really happening. This isn't just some kind of mythical fairy tale stuff that happens in a movie. This was really happening. James is calling them out. The wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord. Now, any of us can recognize the injustice of a worker not getting their due wage. We can, we can relate, we can say, hey, you know what, that's not right. If somebody's going to go out, they're going to work all week, they need to get paid for their work. In fact, the Bible affirms this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 15 and 16 says, God, God himself says, do not take advantage of a hired man. Verse 15, pay him his wages. So here's James calling out the boss man who claims the name of Jesus, who shows up at church on Sunday morning, who worships and gets what he wants to get out of church. And then on Monday morning, he's got guys out working for him with no intention of ever cutting them a paycheck. And James says this is entirely inconsistent with someone who claims the name of Christ. This is entirely inconsistent with someone who has supposedly had a heart change because of what Jesus has done in their life. And so among the wealthy Jewish Christians, some of them are observing this practice of withholding pay for due wages or for their work. Um, he says, you may claim the name of Jesus, but clearly you don't have a real and personal relationship with him because a person who's a Christian, James says, a person who, is, who, is, who, who has experienced the, the forgiveness of Christ, a person who has met the living Savior would never act this way. Now, I think it's important at this point to address, does God have something against wealth? Does God have it out for uh, rich people? And the answer is an unequivocal no, absolutely not. 
For example, when you take a look at the uh, Job from the Old Testament, Job's a guy who went through a terrible ordeal, lost his children, lost his barns, lost his fields, lost his, uh, all of his wealth. Everything was taken from him. Job had nothing but boils on his back. And the whole time he's going through all this ordeal, he never curses God. And at the end of his ordeal, God restores to him his barns, children, his fields, and much, much more wealth. In fact, some commentators have said that Job, uh, if you take it proportionally, was the richest man that has ever lived on the face of the earth. And so, for another example, uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, God blessed Father Abraham with flocks, you know, that he couldn't even count. He blessed him with wealth unimaginable. Uh, Joseph, his great-grandchild, God blessed Joseph after years of imprisonment with great wealth. He lived in the house of Pharaoh. He was adorned with rings. He lived in the palaces of Pharaoh. He was second in charge only to Pharaoh himself, and God blessed Joseph with all of this after everything that he had been through. Um, David, King David, and his son, King Solomon, two men who were the wealthiest among all the Israelites, um, God and, and here they are with all that wealth, and God calls David with all of his wealth a man after my own heart. So the issue here is not wealth. The issue here is what these, how these people got wealthy uh, and, that James is writing to. They weren't paying their workers, and so that's the issue. Now, somebody who's not uh, doing a good job of biblical interpretation would sit down with chapter 5 and verse 1. You can maybe bring up verse 1 for us again which says that, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. And if you read that verse in isolation, without continuing to read the rest of the passage, then somebody might get to the conclusion that God has something against wealth, or God has something against wealthy people, but that is not what the Bible is teaching here. It is that these folks who are wealthy on this occasion are not paying their workers. That's what James has against these people. Are we clear? Okay, all right, just making sure. Just want to make sure. Don't walk out of here today and say, Gordon said you can't. All right, so anyway, hit the lottery. you got to give it all to the church. All right, well, that wraps up our treatment of this text, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, which means what difference does it make, does all this make uh, to my life? Uh, you say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate you sharing up there today, um, but I got my paycheck on Friday. Oh, what difference does any of this make to me? You know, if the guy doesn't pay me, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of there. Nobody else is going to work for him. So what, I mean, what difference? We live in America. What difference does all this make to me? Well, let's talk about that. You see, the big point that James is making is that these supposed Christians, well, he's not really sure that they're Christians. Uh, These are people who have professed Jesus with their mouth, and yet they're behaving like this. They're doing, they're going around committing injustices against their fellow man, against other Christians. And so he says, look, there is no evidence in this person's life who's doing this of a changed heart. There's no evidence in this person's life of a changed behavior or changed actions. I mean, if you've met the risen Savior, if you've had your sins forgiven, if you've been washed in the blood, James says, there has to be a difference in the way that you live, in your behavior, in your attitude. James doesn't want them just talking the talk. James wants them walking the walk. Well, the implications of this go far beyond just you and me. And this is something we really haven't talked about of these last three weeks. Um, and that is that when we live authentic lives before God, a watching world is impressed. 
when we live authentic Christian lives, the way we're supposed to live it, a watching world is attracted to that. You ever think about that? Flip over to Acts chapter 2 with me. And here it tells the story of the early church, how people are coming to Christ and the church is getting organized and the Holy Spirit's come and it's indwelling the believers. And Acts chapter 2 and verse 46 captures some of the activity of these early Christians as they're getting going here. And here's what it says, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. The Christians broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of who? Of all the people. Not just the people that they went to church with, but they enjoyed the favor of their neighbors. They enjoyed the favor of the people that they met in the marketplace. People who were watching their lives observed that and said there's something attractive, something authentic about the way these people are living. And then it goes on to say what the results of all that were. Verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, when a watching world got around these Christians, when the watching world attended their church services, they knew that something authentic was going on amongst those folks. And people were coming to Christ as a result of what they saw and observed every single day. Again, what does this have to do with you and me? Well, Paul writes to Timothy about Christian leaders, and he talks about authenticity among Christian leaders. He says, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, that overseers or Christian leaders must be above reproach. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with outsiders, that is, with non-believers. But this is not just something for Christian leaders to be authentic in their lives. Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he said, let your light so shine. We sang that a few moments ago. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter echoes this same thought, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, live such good lives, that is authentic lives, among non-believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he returns. And then Peter goes on to say, verse 15, for it is by God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Friends, all of these verses are calling to us to live authentic Christian lives, to live lives that people can look at and say, you know what? There is something different, something attractive, something impressive about that person, the quality of who they are and the way they live their life. You say, well, Gordon, okay, I got a question for you. And my question is, what does it mean to live an authentic Christian life. What is like? What does that look like? I mean, it's one thing to say it, but I mean, what do you have in mind? What does the Bible have in mind when it talks about living an authentic Christian life? What's James thinking here? Well, it means two things. Number one, it means personal integrity. Integrity means to do the right thing even when nobody's looking. You say, but Gordon, how do I know what the right thing to do is? I mean, everybody out there seems to have an opinion these days. They think they know what's right. Somebody over here thinks they know what's right, and then they just argue back and forth on Facebook. So, I mean, how do we know who's right? How how do we know what the right thing is? Well, Psalm chapter 19 and verse 8 tells us, it says, The precepts of the Lord, God's thoughts, are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Psalm 119 and verse 151 says, Yet you are near, O God, and all your commands are what? Are true. God's commands are true. 
Listen, friends, if we want to know what the right thing to do is, we need look no further than the B-I-B-L-E. We say it here every week. We don't have to wonder what God thinks. He, oh my goodness, that's so good. I'm so <laughs> impressed by that. That's great. Yeah, we need to look no, no further than the Word of God. The Bible has many commands for our lives. It says don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. It says don't covet your neighbor's stuff. It says honor your father, your mother, forgive those who have hurt you, have compassion for those who are in need, care for the poor. It says be faithful to your spouse, be upright in regard to your relationship with the opposite sex. It says be a man or woman of your word. It goes on and on and on about what the right thing for us to do. It says both here's the right thing to do and here's the wrong thing to do and it paints a very clear picture between the two. And uh, I could go on and on about that, but the point is clear that when we say we are living a life of integrity, doing the right thing even when no one's looking, that means we are living a life of biblical obedience. We're taking what God thinks and then we're living that out in our life. That's what that's what personal integrity is. And you say, Gordon, I appreciate all that. I agree with all that, but here's my big problem. Now that you said all that, how am I going to live this way? I mean, it's not like I don't want to. Uh, but I'm human. Uh, perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. How am I, I can't do this one, 100% of the time. So does that mean that I just live an inauthentic life and we're all doomed to live an inauthentic life? No, not at all. The second part of living an authentic Christian life, the second thing it means, the first thing it means is the personal integrity. The second thing it means is to, number two, to own your stuff. To own your stuff. That is to be honest when you mess up. To have some humility when you mess up. And then seek to make it right. You know, the greatest opportunity that we have to show authenticity in our, in our Christian life is not when we get it right, but it's when we get it wrong. The greatest opportunity we have to show that we are authentic in our Christian life is not when we get it right, but it's when we get it wrong. And when we get it wrong, to go own our stuff. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your brother there in front of the altar and then go to him and say, it was your fault, you're the one who started it, I blame all this on you. Uh, that's not what he said. He said, verse 24, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, this is how you show authenticity. Humble yourself, swallow your pride, admit when you're wrong. That other person, they know. They know we were wrong. I mean, it's not like we're telling them something that they're, oh, I can't believe. No, they know that we were wrong. And so we're not telling them something they don't know. They just want you and I to be honest enough to admit it. And if you're a parent, you know, right? Own your stuff. Be humble enough to say that you're sorry. That is authenticity. You know, there are people in our lives, everywhere in our lives, that we will let down. People that we will make mistakes in front of and to. But it's how we handle those mistakes how that will restore authenticity our authenticity in their eyes. So let's conclude. Authentic Christian living, what does it mean? It means, number one, being a person of integrity. That is doing the right thing even when no one's looking. And we know what the right thing is because we find it in God's word. And number two, it means when we mess up, because we will, when we mess up, we own our stuff. We admit it, and then we do whatever we need to do 
to make it right. Friends, that's authentic Christian living. And that's what a watching world finds compelling. That's what a watching world finds attractive. And that is what will open the heart of a watching world to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us from your word today, for making us aware of how you want us to live, and also instructing us for when we mess up, because it's going to happen, how to restore our witness, our testimony. God, we pray for those that are watching us and are watching to see, is what's going on with this person? Is what's going on in their household? Is it really authentic? Lord, may we take the things we've heard today. May we apply them. May we live them out. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.